0: From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The White House may oppose effective climate action, but when global warming aggravates triple hurricane
1: disasters in America, the military must take action. The Department of Defense is very effective at being some of the first people on scene. This is a team sport, this is interagency, it's not just the military, but what the military can certainly provide is communications, logistics, helicopters. Also, as diplomats
0: gather
2: at the UN in New York, state, city, and business leaders pledge stronger measures against climate disruption. People are committed. They don't seem to be letting the actions of President Trump and his administration dampen their activism, their level of ambition. If anything, I think it's spurring them on to do even more and more quickly. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around.
0: From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. They say it's like a freight train, like a woman or a banshee screaming. And this summer, hurricanes Harvey, Irma, Jose, and Maria howled through trees, houses, schools, and businesses, cascading water as they trashed Texas, Florida, Puerto Rico, and other Caribbean islands. Even as Commander-in-Chief Trump walks back U.S. climate leadership, his top military commanders are planning for climate-related threats and manning the front lines when they do happen. Retired Rear Admiral David Titley led the U.S. Navy's Task Force on Climate Change and is now a professor of meteorology at Pennsylvania State University. David, welcome back to Living on Earth. Thank you so
1: much, Steve. Great to be back.
0: Admiral, faced with the devastation in Puerto Rico, what kind of assistance might the U.S. military be likely to give?
1: The U.S. military will certainly be involved in the disaster relief, along with a lot of other federal agencies. But just as an example... This morning, the Kentucky National Guard is, or part of it, is on their way to Puerto Rico, and these are very specialized airmen uh, who can get the airfields opening up again, Uh, because as you can imagine, when you have this massive storm comes across, you need to get help there, but the airfields themselves can be compromised, the runways can be messed up, you don't have the air traffic control stuff anymore, so the Air Force has specialists who can rapidly get an airfield back together. Similarly, the Navy has uh, people in naval oceanography, we call them a fleet survey team, that when we look at, let's say, the port of San Juan, that's going to need to be opened up so we can get a lot of stuff in there by ship. But my guess is the aids to navigation may be messed up. There might be silting. There might be obstructions in the channel. So all of that stuff has to get picked up rapidly. These are the kinds of capabilities that the Department of Defense will very likely be providing. And as we saw in the
0: aftermath of Katrina, the military can be essential for helping to keep order uh, when the civilian authorities are overwhelmed or, frankly, out of commission because of the disaster.
1: Yeah, there's, I mean, the, the Department of Defense in these kind of humanitarian assistance and disaster relief operations is really very effective at being some of the first people on scene. Although I've, I believe FEMA was stationed in places like Guantanamo Bay in Cuba, so they can get their very quickly. So this is a team sport. This is interagency. It's not just the military. But what the military can certainly provide is communications, logistics, helicopters. Helicopters are worth their weight in gold in the first few days here because it's just so hard to get around a place. Intelligence, you know, all those drones that we hear about and see about in the news, uh, they can be used to really map out where are people, where do people need help how to get water in, Uh, and again, helicopters can be very, very useful for that. Uh, Security, as you mentioned, uh, there's probably tenuous security right now. I haven't seen the reports, but after a major disaster, security is certainly an issue, and it's one of the things that the National Guard and the military, working with the local authorities, whatever local authorities are left, and hopefully there are, can help to quickly reestablish order And that allows really everything else then to all the help and all the aid to follow through. What
0: we're seeing in Puerto Rico, around Houston, what happened in the Keys, you know, this is in America, where, thank heavens, we have a fairly stable government system. But when it hits other places that aren't so stable, it can really create uh, regional, even international security situations. How important is it for the uh, American military to pay attention to climate change as a security threat, from abroad as well as at home.
1: One of the components of climate change that makes it a threat or a risk, if you will, to national security is climate change can make already tenuous or frankly bad places much worse and occasionally catastrophically so. But so much depends on the local governance, on the inherent strength or resilience of the communities affected. This is why you see people like Secretary Mattis talk so strongly about the need for not only the military to be funded, but for adequate funding for U.S. Agency for International Development, or U.S. aid, for our State Department to be adequately funded, adequately manned, because really the military can come in initially and try to help stabilize a situation, but the military, the U.S. military, is not going to be the one that rebuilds these societies. The military tends to turn these over either to places like the Red Cross, like you know, large sustained relief efforts, but really for the stability, we want our federal partners really led by the Department of State, but with expertise from many other components of the federal government to play that role, to help stabilize that government, because that's really a great way to buy down, if you will, the risk of climate change is to have governments who care about their people, who take care of their people, and have the tools and means to do so. Now, under the Trump administration, which has downplayed the risks
0: of climate change, to what extent is the Pentagon uh, factoring in climate change,
1: climate disruption, as a security threat that requires planning? Well, I I think Secretary Mattis was pretty clear on this uh, early on in his tenure as Secretary of Defense. During his confirmation hearing, he was asked some written questions by congressional leaders as to how the secretary would see climate as a as a security risk or a security threat. And Secretary Mattis's response was, he does understand and does see that the climate is changing, and that those changes, if unmanaged, can pose a risk to U.S security operations and U.S Department of Defense. And he said, "Hey, this is my job. It's my job to manage risks of all kinds, one of which, one of the many of which is climate change." So I thought the secretary gave a very practical and pragmatic Response. He's not going to put climate risk and climate change up on a pedestal and make it the one and only thing we worry about. But he's also not saying, hey, this doesn't exist, or it's a hoax, or, you know, all of the other things that we've heard from other parts of this administration. In the Department of Defense, I kind of have a saying that says, if the boss is interested, everybody else is fascinated. (laughs) And what that means is, since you have the Secretary of Defense talking about climate and climate change in that way, it then becomes much easier for his service secretaries, for his assistant secretaries, for the members of the Joint Chiefs of Staff to say, hey, look, we have these changes And really for a lot of the readiness of the Department of Defense, it doesn't even really matter why it's changing, but we know it's changing. We know it's changing pretty quickly, and we better be ready for that, because if we just plan for the past, we're going to be surprised, and that's not where the Department of Defense wants to be.
0: Now, how is the Congress responding to the Defense Department's interest in studying climate change as a security threat?
1: Yeah. One of of the things that to me has been really fascinating this summer is kind of the evolution of climate change as a security risk in our US House of Representatives. So of course, we had the election in November. So yes, it's a, a new house from where we were a year ago, but one year ago, the house with basically the same political makeup, passed an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, the main defense bill, that basically said, hey, the Department of Defense really should not be worrying about or thinking about climate as a, as a risk. We don't want you to do this. Now, that did not survive through all the final negotiations, and it was not signed into law, but that was where the House was. Fast forward 12 months, you had Jim Langevin, Democrat from Rhode Island, put an amendment into the Defense Act that basically said, hey, climate change is kind of a big deal, especially along the coasts, and the Department of Defense should take this seriously and, and come back and tell the Congress exactly how you're managing that risk. It went to the floor of the House, and 46 Republicans basically voted to keep that language in the authorization bill. Another eight Republicans abstained. Maybe they realized they needed to freshen up their coffee at Starbucks. I'm not sure. (laughs) But that's over 50 Republicans who, pardon the double negative, but did not vote against climate as a security risk. That's pretty significant, I think. Uh, Senator McCain just this weekend talked about climate as a security issue. So we're seeing this evolution in the Congress, maybe despite all expectations, given where the administration is. And I'm actually heartened by this. If you look at this administration, I'm not sure they have an ideology on climate or climate change. But what that means is perhaps if the president sees a deal that he thinks is good or he likes it, there might be an opportunity here for you know almost a Nixon to China moment. Are the odds in favor? Maybe not. But the fact that we see the Congress moving and the Republicans in Congress moving on this issue, I think is a very encouraging sign. David, you actually
0: lost a home down on the Mississippi coast to Katrina's massive storm surge back in
1: 2005. What was it like to go through that experience? Well, I guess the technical term is it sucks. Uh, (laughs) I have to say that my wife and I were probably some of the luckiest people on the Mississippi coast. Uh, We had almost none of our personal possessions in that house when the hurricane came, and we did have flood insurance, so financially, I was covered. We were very lucky compared to so many others down there. But I can tell you, losing your home in a span of a few hours is a pretty traumatic experience. When we got back down there, it turned out that all we had is, you know, we were elevated to the FEMA flood standard, not that it did any good. So we had about half a dozen green posts sticking out of the concrete slab, and there was really nothing else on our lot. So I tell people to this day when we lost our house we really literally lost our house. We have no idea where it went. It either got sucked back out into the ocean or maybe put up into the railway embankment along with pretty much everybody else's house. But the good news is is I didn't have to clean up much on our on our lot cuz there really was nothing. But then you're in the same position that everybody else is. You're trying to figure out just very basics like where do you live? Are you going to stay? Are you going to go? Are you going to rebuild? If you're going to rebuild, are you going to rebuild the same way that you had it before? Are you going to go up in elevation? Are you going to go inland? How are you going to get the services? Because it's not only you, it's now you know 100,000 of your closest friends and neighbors want those exact same services at that exact same time. How do you know if you find a contractor that that contractor is a good person, that you're not going to get ripped off? It's not somebody who's kind of come in to take advantage of these situations. All of these things everybody is dealing with, and I'll guarantee you the people in in Texas are dealing with this, many people in Florida, and tragically many people in the U.S. Virgin Islands as well as the other Caribbean nations and Puerto Rico are going to go through this, and it takes a long time. It takes years, and there's just nothing fun about it. It's just hard work, a lot of uncertainty, a ton of decisions, you spend a lot of time wishing that you could just have your life back like it was the day before the storm hit, it's hard. I really, really feel for the people that have been affected by these three storms.
0: David Titley is a retired Rear Admiral and currently Professor of Meteorology at Pennsylvania
1: State University.
0: Thank you so much, Admiral, for taking the time with us today.
1: Thank you so much, Steve. I appreciate you having me on.
0: If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. When the world's leaders gather in New York for the annual fall meeting of the U.N. General Assembly, There is also a series of meetings called Climate Week that allows all those government, business, and NGO leaders to discuss global climate solutions. This year, those consultations have an added urgency. Not only has President Donald Trump said he's pulling the U.S. out of the U.N.-Paris climate agreement, but an unprecedented succession of huge and deadly hurricanes has also been battering the U.S. and the Caribbean. Alden Meyer, a climate diplomacy expert with the Union of Concerned Scientists, came to New York City for Climate Week and joins us now. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Alden. Good to be with you again, Steve. Tell me, what's the mood been like at Climate Week there in New York?
2: Well, it's it's a strange mix, obviously. You have event after event where cities and states and companies are... Making commitments to climate action, there was the launch of the EV100 Alliance where a coalition of global companies, including Unilever, IKEA, DHL, and others have committed to try to replace their fleets with electric vehicles. And earlier, you had Governors Cuomo, Jerry Brown of California, and Jay Inslee from Washington State announce the U.S. Climate Alliance of 14 states and, ironically, Puerto Rico committed to meeting their share of the U.S.-Paris commitment, despite what President Trump is doing. Of course, in contrast, you have President Trump giving a speech, his maiden speech to the United Nations General Assembly, where he didn't mention the words climate change, and despite talking about security risks and instability around the world, didn't make the obvious connection between what we're doing to pump up global warming pollution and, and the impacts that that's already having around the world. So it is this kind of strange confluence of optimism and, and urgency that's coming together here, but people are committed. They don't seem to be letting the actions of President Trump and his administration dampen their activism, their level of ambition. If anything, I think it's spurring them on to do even more and more quickly. All these
0: intense storms here in the U.S., Harvey, Irma, Maria, how is that affecting the discussions at the Climate Week, and how is that affecting you?
2: Well, it certainly is a topic of discussion here. It's concentrating minds. Of course, there are colleagues from the Caribbean that are not able to be here, that had planned to be here for these meetings and these discussions because of what's going back on in their home countries. It is on everyone's mind. It underscores the urgency of the problem and it certainly has affected me and and my thinking about this just to have these reports on the tv on the radio every day about what's going on to see the devastation in places that i and my family have visited like the virgin islands it it really just gives you pause we will see what impact it has on the us policy scene on on the white house on the administration on the congress we'll see if it makes any difference in the conversation uh, certainly as the Congress has to consider disaster relief and financial aid over the next several months to these states and regions. Of course, Puerto Rico is is U.S. jurisdiction, and I think that will be an opportunity to also have the longer-term discussion about what we're doing and are we doing our fair share. Now, Donald
0: Trump, of course, announced that
2: he is
0: uh, pulling the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement, which I guess would take until 2020 to actually put into effect. What do you make of the vote in the Senate recently in a committee to restore to the State Department's budget money necessary for the U.S. State Department to participate in the Paris Agreement to pay for their seat at the table?
2: Well, I think that was uh, important. It's the money for the operations of the United Nations Framework Convention Secretariat, as well as our contribution to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is around $10 million a year, That money was zeroed out in the uh, Trump budget proposal and zeroed out in the House bills as they moved through the process. But in the Senate, you had an amendment by Senator Jeff Merkley from Oregon to restore that funding. And he was able to get the support of two Republicans, Lamar Alexander from Tennessee and Susan Collins from Maine, and allowed him to win the votes and put that money back in. I think the big question will be when the Senate bill goes to conference later this year with the House version of the bill and with the administration not supporting it, what the final outcome would be. But I think it shows that there's an understanding that if you're going to be part of these institutions, part of these agreements, that you need to pay your share of operating them. And of course, President Trump announced he intended to withdraw the U.S. from Paris, but not from the underlying framework convention that was agreed to by President George H.W. Bush in Rio in in 1992. So I take it as a good sign. We're going to be fighting, along with many other groups, to make sure that funding is maintained throughout the rest of the process. But there's still a lot of heavy lifting ahead. So what are your thoughts on the buzz that President Trump might
0: reverse his Paris decision? Say, issue a new U.S. target and say that he's won and, and, and rejoin?
2: Well, this is an ongoing discussion since the Rose Garden speech he gave on June 1st, where he falsely claimed that the Paris Agreement put the United States at a competitive disadvantage and that other countries were laughing at us because we took on this obligatory burden, none of which, of course, is true. But even in that speech, he left the door open, saying if we could renegotiate the agreement to be more favorable to the U.S., he might change his mind. I think what's become clear since then is that other countries are not open to renegotiating the agreement itself, and the United States has pretty much dropped any uh, claim in that area. The phrase now is re-engagement. Will the U.S. re-engage with Paris? One route there could be for the Trump administration to put forward a less ambitious national target for emissions reductions in the U.S. They also could engage in the negotiations over the implementation rules for Paris, things like reporting by countries like China and India on how well they're doing in meeting the commitments they made. But there's a bit of kabuki play, I think, going on here. I think part of this is to keep the international community perhaps hoping that President Trump will change his mind and stay in Paris when there's no real indications from the president himself that he's really thinking that way in order to prevent more severe diplomatic uh, blowback from the world for the U.S. abandoning uh, Paris. What
0: did you make of the uh, recent meeting in Montreal that Canada convened with China and the EU to address uh, elements of the Paris Agreement?
2: That was a very significant meeting, not necessarily for the substance that came out of it, because it was the first meeting of those three countries had hosted, but by the fact that they stepped into the vacuum created by the Trump administration. Because as you know, President Obama and before him, President Bush, had hosted what were called the major economy forum meetings, the so called MEF meetings. And I think having China in particular join the European Union and Canada in stepping into that vacuum and offering leadership to maintain that kind of dialogue is significant. They've announced Europe will host a meeting in the first half of next year in Brussels, and China will host a meeting in the second half of the year in China. So it's a significant issue and a forum that I think can be useful, but this was just the first introductory meeting.
0: Now, come November, there'll be another Conference of the Parties for the big UN Framework Convention as well as the Paris process. What are the big agenda items that need to be accomplished at that meeting? And it's just right around the corner now.
2: Yeah, well, there are a number that have to be accomplished. One is they have to make significant progress on these implementation rules for Paris, things like reporting guidelines, accounting standards, financial elements, the new market mechanisms that were created in Paris to allow countries to collaborate in reducing their emissions, land use change issues, the issues of adaptation, loss and damage. There's a whole series of Detailed rules that they aim to adopt by the end of next year. And of course, the original intent of Paris was that by 2020, all countries would take a harder look at the commitments they made in 2015, sharpen their pencils, and see if they could do more. But then, of course, there will be also discussions, and I think particularly in the wake of this week's intense storms in the Caribbean and the US, of the issue that's called loss and damage. What do you do? to help countries that are grappling with the unavoidable impacts of climate change, even if we do as much as we can to reduce emissions and limit the temperature increase. We're already just at about one degree Celsius uh, increase in temperature over pre-industrial levels. And you can see the extreme weather events that we're now seeing around the world. So even if we succeed in holding temperature increases well below two degrees, as opposed to the three and a half or four degree path that we're on now, those impacts are going to continue to mount. And particularly the vulnerable countries uh, need help dealing with them, preparing for them, recovering from them. How does that make you feel? Well, it obviously is very concerning. It makes me sad on a deep level because we've been predicting this, not only my organization, but the scientific community globally and many others around the world, that this is exactly what we would be experiencing if we didn't take more aggressive action. And I think it's an indication that we're running out of time. But on the optimistic side, the response of other countries, of governors, of mayors, of the business community to this problem, the dramatic reduction in the costs and availability of clean solutions like wind and, and solar energy gives me hope. So again, you know, it's it's that strange, bittersweet mix of some despair along with some hope. And you just have to put one foot in front of the other and and keep doing what you can based on where you are and and whatever access and influence you have to keep trying to influence the process and, and drive quicker action.
0: Alden Meyer is Director of
2: Strategy and Policy
0: for the Union of Concerned Scientists. Thanks so much, Alden. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Steve.
2: It was good to be with you.
0: Let's take a trip to Georgia now to catch up with Peter Dykstra and what's happening beyond the headlines. Peter's with Environmental Health News, at ehn.org and dailyclimate.org, and he's on the line from Brookhaven. Hey there, Peter, what's going on?
3: Hi, Steve. In keeping with an all-too-rare tradition, let's try to get some good environmental news in here.
0: <laughs> good news is always welcome, so fire away.
3: Well, the Seychelles are a beautiful island archipelago in the Indian Ocean surrounded by some of the most unexploited ocean areas left in the world. And the Seychelles government is now looking at a proposal for a huge marine reserve, one of the world's biggest, and one that would come on the heels of another announcement of the world's biggest marine sanctuary around Easter Island in the Pacific.
0: So uh, let's back up a minute, Peter. Marine reserves, marine sanctuaries, these are uh, the kind of national parks of the oceans, right?
3: Correct, and protecting huge swaths of that ocean from commercial activity, fishing, deep sea mining, drilling, and a lot more is a big step toward preserving some sort of legacy. Just like Teddy Roosevelt and others did a century ago with protected land areas like Yellowstone and Yosemite, modern-day conservationists view themselves as protecting oceanic national parks in the same way.
0: Uh, Peter, not to wash a wave over your campfire, but aren't these marine sanctuaries on the high seas hard to police? I mean, their areas are, are as big as the state of Texas, and they've got, what, one boat, maybe two patrol boats to guard them?
3: Well, that's a valid point. Uh, Policing them is a major concern, but at least it's getting a little easier to patrol them. The same kind of satellite technology that allows other nations to monitor things like North Korean nuclear activity allows us to follow illegal fishing boats into protected water. The tiny Pacific Island nation of Palau has already seized a couple of boats in this manner for illegal fishing in its marine sanctuary. A specific about this latest deal, the Seychelles swung a huge arrangement with the nonprofit Nature Conservancy, which will pick up millions of the tiny nation's international debt in exchange for limiting tuna fishing and other commercial activity in its waters.
0: Hmm, a debt for tuna swap. Of course, back home here, Interior Secretary Zinke would like to see more fishing in some U.S. marine monuments. Hey, Peter, what's your next topic for this week?
3: This one's from academics at Indiana University and the National University of Australia. They say that even after scientists tell us that storms and droughts and floods are very likely made more frequent and intense by climate change, a season of such catastrophic storms hasn't done much to change public opinion.
0: So you're telling me that uh, Harvey, Irma, uh, Maria,
3: these killer Atlantic hurricanes uh, won't move the needle much? Surprisingly little, and only for a short period of time, according to this research which was published this month in the Journal of Environmental Change. The huge damage that's been done in Texas and Florida and the Caribbean, climate advocates have had little success pressing their arguments that even these megastorms should move hearts and minds the way they moved coastlines.
0: All right, well, let's move on now to the land of learning from past mistakes, our weekly voyage through the History Files.
3: Yeah, sometimes we do learn from history, and this one can hopefully be one of those times, specifically that time when Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher joined other world leaders in an environmental breakthrough that's bearing fruit today. 30 years ago, 25 nations, including Reagan's United States and Thatcher's United Kingdom, signed on to the Montreal Protocol, the global effort that came together to close the growing ozone holes over the Arctic and the Antarctic.
0: Those holes threaten to expose humans and wildlife to the harmful UV radiation normally kept out by the Earth's protective layer of stratospheric ozone.
3: Yeah, the treaties work to phase out ozone-destroying chemicals like chlorofluorocarbons from the Earth's upper atmosphere, resulting in projections that our ozone holes will someday heal themselves. And in fact, they've already begun to do so.
0: So we had good news to start and good news to finish. Peter, thanks.
3: All right, Steve, thanks a lot. We'll talk to you soon.
0: Peter Dykstra is with dailyclimate.org and environmentalhealthnewssehn.org. And there's more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Here on the east coast of the U.S., the autumnal equinox came shortly after four in the afternoon on September 22nd, and the days are growing noticeably shorter. But many of the songsters of summer are still with us, and as Mary McCann points out in today's Bird Note, they continue to put on spectacular shows.
4: As the sun sets over the Connecticut River, an astounding natural spectacle unfolds as many as 300,000 sparkling blue swallows, tree swallows, wing their way from miles around to roost for the evening on Goose Island near Old Lyme. The birds gather on the wing in one immense, tightly choreographed flock, a swirling mass that changes shape from one second to the next, like an immense silken banner or a plume of smoke racing with the wind. With dusk at hand, The aerobatic flock, now shaped like a tornado, swoops down into the island's tall reeds. It takes but 15 seconds for the 300,000 birds to vanish into the marsh, where they remain until dawn. Roger Torrey Peterson, dean of American birdwatching, wrote of the swallows, I have seen a million flamingos on the lakes of East Africa, and as many seabirds on the cliffs of the Alaska Pribilofs. But for sheer drama, the tornadoes of tree swallows eclipsed any other avian spectacle I have ever seen. Soon, all of Goose Island swallows will disappear below the southern horizon for the winter. But witnesses will long remember the autumnal spectacle of the bird's mass flight. I'm Mary McCann.
0: And for photos, try Our Roost, the website LOE.org.
5: Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health.
0: It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In a moment, how the proverbial chicken in every pot became so cheap and potentially deadly. But first, this note on emerging science from Noble Ingram.
6: The world's most widely used language isn't English, Spanish, or Mandarin. It isn't even spoken. It's smelled. A sweeping variety of organisms use chemical fragrances called terpenes to communicate. Now, a research team from the Netherlands Institute of Ecology has found new evidence linking microorganisms to this silent language. For years, scientists have known that plants and insects use terpenes to send signals, as mammals do with pheromones. But the research team discovered that smelly messages are also exchanged between microorganisms, including fungi and bacteria. The new findings add trillions of life forms to terpenes' list of fluent speakers. In the study, a fungus called fusarium produced terpenes that were picked up by a neighboring soil bacteria called serratia. The serratia then responded, expelling their own scent signals that were crafted specifically for the fusarium. What exactly was being communicated remains unclear, but the team says the interaction was a recognizable call and response. While humanity struggles to bridge language gaps within its own species, these tiny lifeforms have been chatting with each other across phylogenetic domains. But despite our limited linguistic abilities, we might unknowingly be joining the conversation. Terpenes are also popular ingredients in perfumes. These biochemicals provide natural notes like juniper, lemon, and eucalyptus to an aromatic blend. So next time you catch a whiff of fancy cologne, consider it a hello. After all, plenty of microorganisms do. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Noble Ingram.
0: Back in 1970, the average American ate less than a pound of chicken each week. Today, it's more than twice that. And in the rush to bring all that poultry to market, some industrial-scale producers relied on antibiotics to keep infections down in their massive factory farms. But as the wisdom of that has been questioned, a lot of chicken producers are scaling back on their wholesale use of antibiotics. For an update on this trend, we turn now to Marin McKenna, who has written a new book called Big Chicken. Maren McKenna is a journalist and author who focuses on public health and food policy, and she joins us now from Atlanta, Georgia. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. Now, we've known about the risks of antibiotics in agriculture and livestock for a long time. What prompted you to begin writing this particular book? I know you've been active in this area for much of your career as well.
7: So the reason why I wanted to look at this was really twofold. The first was... Seven years ago, I wrote a book about antibiotic resistance generally. It's called Superbug, and it was my attempt to tell the story of the emergence of antibiotic resistance by sort of telling the biography of a single organism, MRSA, or drug-resistant staff. And I went into that. Project thinking that I knew what the story was that there were two epidemics of staff in hospitals and in the wider world, what's called community associated MRSA. That's the staff that affects kids in school and has ruined the careers of a lot of pro athletes. And it turned out that that was wrong. There were actually three epidemics of drug-resistant staff around the world, in hospitals, in the community, and also in farms. And the statistics that I stumbled across in researching that were that we use in the United States four times as many antibiotics in animals as we are in humans. And that just made no sense to me because I just emerged from talking to people who were saying, we have to be conservative with antibiotics. We have to be very careful how we use them. And yet here on the agricultural side, people were tossing antibiotics by the literal ton into animal feed.
0: So in your work on MRSA, you found that not just the hospital, not just the locker room, but whoa, on farms and among farm workers. But how is the antibiotic drug resistance in the poultry industry different or unique compared to what happens for human antibiotic use?
7: Well, in some ways it's not unique at all. The problem with farm antibiotic use is that we use the exact same antibiotics in farm animals that we do to treat human infections. What The implications of that are that if a resistant bacteria arises in animals as a result of that antibiotic use and then travels off the farm to affect humans in some way, then the drugs that we would have relied on no longer work because they've been undermined by that use on the farm. And the big fight over farm antibiotic use pretty much from its inception has been whether those bacteria actually do travel off the farm. They're not just resident with the animals, but they affect human health far from the farm. And I think it's very well established now that that is the case, that it does have a broad effect. But it was tracing that chain of evidence that was one of the things that made me want to do this project and write this
0: book. And talk to us about why farmers started using antibiotics back after they were discovered and particularly the economic conditions that made it advantageous for that.
7: So like a lot of things, this is kind of a story of uh, good intentions gone awry. So Immediately after World War II, several things are happening. First, it's the start of the antibiotic era. Penicillin's out in 1944 and 1945, and there's great rejoicing at how powerful these drugs are to reverse infectious diseases. At the same time, the food production system has been really undermined by the war. And there's a great deal of excess capacity because all those troops were being fed and now all those troops have gone home. So out of that desire to protect the food production system while also cutting costs comes this idea of using antibiotics as what are called growth promoters, which are tiny doses that you give animals routinely that some somewhat mysteriously at the time, caused them to put on weight much faster than they would have otherwise. Now, we would recognize that today as being a disruption of the gut microbiome that affects nutrient uptake. But uh, in the 1940s and 50s, they didn't really know what was going on. They just knew that it worked.
0: And in fact, today, as you point out, it doesn't make these chickens any fatter to use this.
7: It's true. And it's not just chickens. You know, this goes on in pigs and this goes on in cattle as well in all the major meat eating animals. It is absolutely true that in the United States and in Western Europe, growth promoters don't work anywhere near as well as they once did. That's probably one of the reasons why industry was willing to give them up in response to this Obama administration pressure. But... They're still very much used in the developing world, and that is going to be where the fight over this turns now, because in conditions of more crowding, of less hygiene, of less precision nutrition, all of which we take for granted in agriculture in the United States, but we can't take for granted in the developing world, growth promoters and preventive uses of antibiotics in animals are still really valuable, but they still have this same resistance promoting effect.
0: There's a basic thing about antibiotics in livestock, and that is producers are, are tempted to use them more and more in crowded and not healthy conditions. To what extent do these antibiotics allow for these huge factory farms that you talk about to exist, A, in the United States, but B, overseas?
7: So using antibiotics routinely in farm animals does two things. The first is this growth-promoting effect where you give them very small doses, literal grams per ton of feed, and it causes them to put on tasty muscle faster. And to me, that's the thing that really starts the whole ball rolling for what we now think of as industrial-scale agriculture. Because once you can produce animals a little more quickly or a little more cheaply, it becomes tempting, I think, to do that more and more. And so we start to move toward the farms that are running in a more mechanized fashion. Then as they get bigger, someone has the idea to use just a little more antibiotic, still doses far below what it would take to cure an infection, but enough that it protects the animals from being in such close quarters with each other. And so we get a very efficient system for growing very inexpensive protein, but with the downside of resistant bacteria being created in a way that no one really intended, but for a long time, no one really took account of either.
0: Talk to me about food poisoning and its connection to the widespread use of antibiotics and livestock. In your book, you mention a case actually involving egg processing, that there was a substantial salmonella outbreak. And we know even today Organizations like the Consumers Union will publish studies saying that a fairly large percentage of poultry has a lot of unhappy bacteria on it, whether it's salmonella or listeria. How is that related to this overuse, in your view, of antibiotics?
7: So back before the growing of meat animals became industrialized, when farms were still pretty small, if there was an outbreak of foodborne illness, it was... Usually, a pretty local one, and you had a fairly good sense of where it was coming from, whether it was from a particular farmer or a particular dinner or a particular place where a small group of people had eaten. As farms get larger and larger, and the industry collapses into larger companies that are sending the foods that they produce across greater distances, first, foodborne illness outbreaks get larger and they also get much more spread out, so they're harder to solve then add antibiotics on top of that. So the bacteria that cause foodborne illness are bacteria that come from the animal's guts. And when you are feeding antibiotics to those animals, the antibiotics are going into their guts as well and influencing the bacteria in their guts to turn toward antibiotic resistance. Those bacteria may get on the meat that those animals are becoming and travel with them into the food system, into home kitchens, into restaurant kitchens, into supermarkets. So you get, for the first time, both antibiotic resistant foodborne illness and also outbreaks of foodborne illness that are much harder to track back to the places that they come from than they would formerly have been. So while it's the concentration of agriculture that starts the ball rolling for larger, more diffuse outbreaks of foodborne illness, adding antibiotics to the mix makes them much more dangerous.
0: Talk to me about the animal welfare part of the overuse of antibiotics.
7: So the thing about using antibiotics routinely, and I want to be clear here that the antibiotic use that deserves scrutiny is not antibiotic use that cures infections in animals that are sick. What we're talking about here is antibiotic use in animals that are not sick for purposes other than curing infections. If we did that in humans, medicine would immediately consider that to be inappropriate. We only use antibiotics to cure infections in humans. We overwhelmingly don't do that in agriculture. So once you start protecting animals from the consequences of the way that you're keeping them, whether that's feeding them lower quality protein or cramming them together in a barn or feedlot in a density that they wouldn't naturally be able to tolerate, then their quality of life naturally goes down.
0: Now, um, Maren, you, you wrote that attempts to regulate antibiotic uses on farms started in the 70s but usually failed. What happened? What were the conditions that prevented policymakers from curbing antibiotic use in agriculture back then?
7: So the story of how we almost got in the United States to regulating this practice is really a sad story. So to set the stage a little bit. This widespread use of antibiotics on farms is happening by the mid 1950s. The first troublesome outbreaks of antibiotic resistant food borne illness. happening by the mid-1960s. And by the end of the 1960s, the first government to take a look at this is actually the British government, which by 1971 restricts all growth promoters. And that turns attention back to the United States, since we are the home of this antibiotic use and a much, much larger agricultural economy. So the Carter administration comes in, in 1976, and they decide that one of the things that they're going to do is they're going to reverse This FDA policy, these licenses granted in the 1950s. So there's a very activist new FDA commissioner. His name is Donald Kennedy. And he sends a message to the manufacturers of veterinary antibiotics, which are most of the large pharma companies in the country. He puts a notice in the federal register saying he's going to summon all of them to a hearing. And at that hearing, he's going to ask them all to prove that their products as used in agriculture are safe. And if they can't prove that, then he's going to yank the licenses and he never gets to hold that hearing because a very powerful congressman from the South who has oversight over the FDA's budget sends a message up to the Carter White House that if this hearing goes ahead, then this congressman will hold the FDA's entire budget hostage. And thus the opportunity goes away. That commissioner, Donald Kennedy, is on loan from Stanford University, and within a couple of years, he has to go back. And the congressman, Jamie Whitten, puts a rider on the appropriation bills for basically the rest of his tenure in the House of Representatives, saying that antibiotic use in agriculture cannot be re-regulated by the FDA. And he keeps that rider going until he retires in the 1990s.
0: So talk to me about how the political landscape has changed. Particularly you say the year twenty thirteen is a pivotal year in this story. What what makes that year so significant?
7: So the stalemate that the government and agriculture and the veterinary pharma industry are in goes on for decades. And then a whole bunch of pieces of the landscape changed. That stubborn congressman retires. And the Obama administration comes in in 2009 and somewhat mysteriously decides that they are going to make this one of their issues. And one of the things they do is they say to the FDA, let's revisit what was supposed to happen in 1977, but was prevented. So at the end of 2013, the FDA moves to do a thing that in 1977 they didn't think about. They propose not a law and not a regulation, because both of those could be interfered with by Congress, but instead a semi-voluntary measure that they call a guidance, which is something that the FDA can do without any of the other branches of government touching it. So they put forth a set of guidances that recommend that drug manufacturers change the labels on their drugs so they can no longer be used as growth promoters on farms. And somewhat to everyone's surprise, all of the pharma industry falls in line. The FDA gives the industry three years to try this from the end of 2013 to the end of 2016. All of the pharma manufacturers agree. And so as of January 1st of this year, to use antibiotics as growth promoters is effectively illegal in the United States, putting us in line with what Europe did more than 10 years ago.
0: Marin, from your perspective, what are the alternative models to raise chickens in more environmentally and economically and sustainable ways? And some would say even more humane ways.
7: So the thing that I think is really interesting about this is that giving up antibiotics has created a kind of ripple effect through the industry in a few different ways. First, it opens up the market, I think, to the small and medium-sized producers who want to raise birds in an extremely high welfare, out on pasture, very old-fashioned-looking manner. Those birds are allowed to live a lot longer. They exercise. They have what look like happy lives. They also taste different, and they are a challenge for consumers To embrace, but foregoing antibiotics has also caused the major producers to really start making other changes in their production as well. The best example of this is Purdue Foods, Purdue Farms. And they have said to me: reconsidering antibiotics caused us to rethink an awful lot of other things about the way we raise our chicken. And now they're doing things like cutting windows in the walls of their barns and putting herbs and probiotics and prebiotics into their chickens' diets and allowing the chickens to exercise. So rethinking antibiotics, I think, is changing the entire way this protein, chickens, are produced. And the question will be, then can chicken teach the rest of the meat economy that this is the way that's worth going?
0: Maren McKenna is a journalist and author. Her new book is called Big Chicken, The Incredible Story of How Antibiotics Created Modern Agriculture and Changed the Way the World Eats. Thanks so much, Maren, for taking the time.
7: Thank you for having me.
0: Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Noble Ingram, Jamie Kaiser, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Olivia Reardon, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show with help from Jeff Wade and Jake Rigo. Allison Aristeen composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth.
5: Serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. From Gilman Ordway and from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888 997 1703. That's 888 997 1703.